Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall or no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 per month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the COVID crisis in care homes, grooming gangs and the corona cops. More than 11,000 people have died in UK care homes during this pandemic. So right from the start, we've tried to throw a protective ring around our care homes. When my father first became ill, I was told that a lady had been discharged back to the care home and she had tested positive for COVID-19. We brought the lockdown in care homes ahead of the general lockdown. In Britain, more than 11,000 people have died in care homes over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the peak of the outbreak, nearly three times as many people were dying in care homes than in a normal year, though only half of those deaths have been put down to coronavirus itself. There is a widespread anger that care homes have been neglected in terms of funding and access to testing and personal protective equipment. And there's also a great deal of evidence that official advice pushed the crisis into care homes as patients were discharged from hospital without being tested for COVID-19. Ella, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it was in your article for Spike this week, Fraser, that you said that the scandalous situation in care homes should be the real issue of the lockdown of the whole, this whole coronavirus period, because it is scandalous that Quite clearly now, it seems that the government, rather than taking a focused approach to genuinely protect those who are most vulnerable to this disease, which was the elderly, rather than focusing on how it was going to work it so that they would stay safe. In fact, actually, especially people, elderly people living in care homes were thrown under a bus in several ways. One, by the fact that no one seemed willing to address that a vast majority of care homes were already in a perilous state whether that be from funding or lack of equipment or just being crappy places to live. And then on top of that, the fact that there was no focused attempt to send PPE there for the staff that were working there. These are places that are already massively understaffed in the healthiest of times. And so when coronavirus hit and people started being too frightened to go into work, that obviously had a damaging effect. But most crucially, this really shocking fact that essentially coronavirus patients were being pushed into care homes and then it spread and people have died. And all of this could have been so easily avoided by the government refusing to be pressurised by the sort of shrieking, fear-mongering from mainly members of the media and taking the stance, let's rewind our heads back six, seven weeks, however long it was ago, to when they were talking about taking a measured and calm and focused approach to this, not shutting schools, not closing all of society down, but working to protect people that needed it. What should have happened is that life should have gone on for normal for most of us and that those who were in danger from dying from this virus, again, the elderly or those who have got those underlying health conditions, those were the ones that were shut away and protected and given everything they needed to stay safe. 
And so this has to be seen in the grander context of the way we treat old people, because it's not a mistake that this has happened. It's not just a consequence of coronavirus that couldn't be helped. The fact is that we do not prioritise the lives of the elderly, that we see that in all the ways that they have, were treated and talked about in the years before coronavirus, that they're more often than not seen as a problem. And so they end up being these problems that are shut away in care homes and forgotten about. And lots of them over the last few weeks have died alone in their rooms. And that is a scandal and the government should be held to task for it. Tom? Well, I think the inability of the government to face up to this has been really quite striking. You know, they're just kind of outright lying now. I mean, Matt Hancock last week said that they threw a protective ring around care homes. And given all Mm. the things that we know now about, you know, patients being discharged out of hospitals, as Ella was saying, not even with the need for a coronavirus test, even if they'd previously had coronavirus, you know, many care home managers citing that and being able to almost directly trace it to outbreaks in the homes that they run. We know that's complete nonsense. Boris Johnson said uh, that the lockdown came in earlier in care homes. That's just simply not true. There was no ban on non-essential visits. If anything, more kind of stringent guidance for that came in 10 days after the general lockdown. Yeah. And it's conceivably, you could have issued a nationwide lockdown while making extra and early provisions for care homes. You know, I'm sure people would make that argument. But given that we've seen a very similar thing that's happened in New York, you know, where you had a very similar situation, you know, with attempt to kind of clear the decks in hospitals and therefore pushing people back into care homes without the proper protections and tests, supporters of lockdown do have to answer this question, which is that if you pursue only this kind of policy of the blunt instrument, are you not going to make it far harder to properly protect those people who we've known have been most vulnerable since, you know, this issue first crested. I mean, could it be that if you devote kind of all of the state's attention to just treating everyone as if they're equally at threat, that are you not diverting resources away from where they're most needed? And could it be as well that that kind of defence of the health service, you know, stay home to protect the NHS, you know, rather than the NHS being there to serve us we almost had to serve it could it be that that became so kind of fetishized that you got into a situation which it was actually endangering more lives and i just see no one in the in the government and certainly no one in the vociferously pro-lockdown set having any convincing answers to those questions I think that's absolutely right. I don't think you can disentangle the general lockdown from the policy of exposing care homes to the virus, because at the end of the day, they're both driven by the same need, the same belief that hospitals would be overrun Mm. in the event of this crisis. So, you know, you see way back as early as, as March, the NHS saying we need to increase our capacity by discharging people to care homes. And then you see well into April, you know, only days before the peak of the virus, mm. guidance saying very specifically, patients do not need to have a negative test before they go into care homes. Again, driven by this fear that the NHS would would collapse. I guess the other thing to remember is that a lot of these people have not necessarily died of coronavirus as well, which is another aspect of why the protect the NHS message has been, you know, so dangerous. There's been a 40% fall in A&E visits compared to this time last year. Cancer referrals are down 70%. So the whole message of protect the NHS above all else has done a huge amount of damage and has caused real havoc, not just in care homes, but across society. Ella? Again, this happens every year when the flu hits Mm. and people start talking about bed blockers and old people who really should be in hospital because they've got a lung collapsing or something don't get the treatment that they need. And 
this is going to be even worse now, as you say, Fraser, because at the moment, the idea of going to hospital for an old person is like saying, I want to die. Mm. It's like committing suicide. That That's what they think it is because the fear of catching coronavirus is so high. And that simply means that, like you say, people aren't getting the care that they need. But there's another point. It's not just about deaths. The consequences of lockdown for elderly people who are either in care homes or living at home alone and have care visitors that come to them is that I remember, you know, three years ago when, by when Theresa May was prime minister and there was this massive conversation about loneliness and the fact that loneliness kills and there were strategies put out and commissions set up and it was widely accepted that there were masses of old people living in homes or on their own who were dying from loneliness. And it's as if that never happened. I'm not, I didn't particularly think that that was entirely accurate as it mm. happens. Lots of old people like to be on their own after having busy lives. But the idea that then without question, you would accept a strategy that literally made old people be alone for weeks in misery, not even being able to see the person that comes to water their plants for them. It hasn't been addressed. Mm. And that is something that is going to have negatively affected people. I wouldn't be surprised if no one wants to put their loved one in a care home for a very long time. And why would you? Because they've been shown to be really miserable places. And so if you were to take a positive out of this, which I think we should try to do, is that this crisis has shown that I think we have to rethink the way that we provide social care for the elderly. Some people have suggested nationalising it, although Part of the problem is that state-run care homes are some of the most dire places to live in. So that isn't necessarily a magic bullet. But thinking more about how we deal as a society with an aging population in a way that puts them front and centre, rather than treating them like a problem that you just have to get out of the way. Tom, do you want to come in? We've been talking about, you know, whether or not the policy of lockdown, you know, pursued long after it was originally set out, actually cause a problem of kind of bandwidth in government or an issue with directing resources to where they're really needed. I think exactly the same thing is true about the media, the slowness with which so many people, particularly in the mainstream, caught onto this or realised that this mm. was a core part of this crisis. You know, to your credit, Fraser, this is something you noticed very early on and were reporting about it before a lot of other people were, I think was also bound up with the fact that all of the media's energy was invested in the project of lockdown, mm. of insisting that, first of all, that the government was slow to do it. This was their main attack line. It spoke to how careless Boris Johnson was. And then also with the kind of, you know, the weeks afterwards where all the discussion was about shaming people for sunbathing because it kind of got wrapped up with this very anti-people perspective that a lot of people in the media seem to share. They were spending all day talking about that and no time talking about, you know, the ticking time bomb that was going on in the care sector. So I think there's a question of government bandwidth here, but also media bandwidth and attention that they became so obsessed with these certain things and, and missed the the crisis that was unfurling, you know, underneath the surface of all of that. You want to scream sometimes when you think about it, because the amount of resources that have been spent on this lockdown, you know, furloughing millions of workers just on that alone is crazy. Imagine if you'd have channeled those resources into care homes, into protecting the elderly, into making sure that, you know, even while they're being shielded and protected, that they're not lonely, that they're being fed and, you know, being treated and cared for adequately. Can you imagine how different things might have been? But instead, you know, it had to be the general lockdown. We had to put everyone under house arrest. We had to crash the economy. Honestly, it makes no sense. And it's and it's just drives you mad <laughs> thinking about it. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. 
We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Government research into the scale and nature of the grooming gangs phenomenon will be made public following a U-turn by the Home Office. Originally, the Home Office said that it would not be in the public interest to release the paper, but a petition calling for its publication was signed by over 100,000 people. Time and again, in towns and cities across the country, the authorities fail to protect young girls who are being sexually exploited. Review after review has found that the police and social workers knew what was going on and were often aware of the pattern of mostly white girls being abused by mostly Pakistani Asian men, but were reluctant to intervene because they were afraid of being called racist. Rakib Hassan joins us down the line for this section. Rakib is a spiked columnist and a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. Uh, Rakib, can you tell us first a bit about this report specifically that the government has U-turned over? Well, I think initially, firstly, with the report, it's looking into large-scale cases of child sexual exploitation across the UK, particularly in England. There's been a great deal of controversy around the management of the report, whether or not it should be kept for uh, internal use or should it be open to public consumption. It seems now that there has been a fundamental U-turn that the report will now be released for public consumption. And I think that's a, I think that's a step in the right direction. I think that's the correct decision. I mean, because isn't it often the case that people feel that these issues are, are not talked about, that there is a kind of silence around them, that they're possibly even covered up? So wouldn't, you know, perhaps not publishing this report would have lent to that kind of feeling, do you think? Originally, people who were defending the position that it should only be kept for internal use and that it should not be released, they provided this defence, which I don't think is particularly watertight. They said that, you know, depending on the findings of the report, that could inflame social tensions. But I would say that public authorities who have you know, clearly failed to prioritise the safety and security of, as you say, predominantly white, working class, underage girls. And then if we were to have this report which was then, you know, just kept for internal use and not released to the public, that'd be seen as a, an establishment stitch-up, which would have the potential to inflame social tensions, particularly in post-industrial towns across uh, England and also inner-city areas which have experienced these large-scale cases of uh, child sexual exploitation that we're speaking about. Tom, do you want to come in? No, I really agree with that point. And of course, as we know, for a very long time, the silence on this issue, you know, particularly from the media, was motored by a sense that talking about this could inflame racism, it could inflame the far right. If you think back to, what, 2003, I think it was, when Anne Cryer, the Labour MP then for Keighley, began raising the alarm about this, she was shouted down very much in those terms. You know, even Andrew Norfolk, who was the Times journalist who broke the Rotherham story, you know, even he admitted that when he heard those allegations. He resisted at first from investigating them out of fear that it would feed the far right. But as it's turned out, you know, the deafening silence on this issue has definitely allowed the far right more room to operate. They've been able to position themselves as truth tellers, because for a very long time, literally the only people who were talking about this were the BNP and the EDL and people of that 
kind. And then what they can do is they can attach their agenda to it. They can say this isn't a distinct problem involving men of a certain background that needs to be dealt with, but a damning indictment of Islam and all Muslims and reasons why we need to end immigration and all this kind of stuff. So I think those who put political correctness you know, above thousands of young vulnerable girls is safety that's frankly deplorable on the face of it but even in their supposed aim you know not to give sucker to the far right they have spectacularly failed on that all because they didn't trust us to be able to have a, a grown-up conversation about this stuff ella do you want to come in i remember in 2017 when the labor mp sarah champion wrote that article for the sun with the headline something like british pakistani men are raping young women and it's time we talked about and she had to resign from her role in the Women's Inequalities Committee because there was a huge amount of criticism about her being racist. And even though she defended herself and explained, and we know now that what she was saying was factually correct, it didn't matter. You know, that was only a few years ago. And we need to remember that it was at the same time that the hashtag MeToo movement was happening. And there was a sort of global discussion about these slogans, believe all women. And there was a, you know, a massive debate about victims of abuse and sexual harassment and assault and how it was supposedly widespread. And you remember we had endless minor celebrities and commentators on television talking about when one MP breathed near them. <laughs> and at the same time, there was, you know, few people talking about what was happening in the North, but not many. And certainly the vast majority of feminists weren't paying attention to it. And there is this uncomfortable question, which is what is it about young working class women in these areas that's not worth listening to. And as was mentioned in a column spike this week, you know, the fact that there are still elements of the case which are really confusing and scandalous, like some of the perpetrators being allowed out early, some of the victims being confronted in supermarkets by those that they have accused of abuse and terrible things still happening. So this isn't a closed case, this isn't a closed book. And some of those young women who are now adults are still suffering from that. And it's just that distinction between a huge amount of attention and focus on, you know, the more middle-class sections of society and their gripes with pervy men while working-class women were largely ignored. That's a part of this as alongside the sort of debate about racism and cultural sensitivities. That is the other ugly part of this, which is that it's revealed a rather nasty class definition in contemporary feminism. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I remember Joanna Williams writing about the Telford mm. revelation several years ago and I think she put it brilliantly when she said that, you know, this is a case of having both the wrong victims, you know, working class girls and the wrong perpetrators, you know, mostly Asian Pakistani men who people didn't want to accuse of, of wrongdoing for, you know, reasons of political correctness. I mean, I, I wonder, Ricky, if you could talk a bit about those kinds of specifics because you know, it, it's true to say that the vast majority of sex offences generally are committed by white people, but there is something distinct about this type of grooming gang offence. I wondered if you could speak a bit to that. Well, I, I think just, just building on some of the points that we've discussed already, I think one of the main reasons why I would say the contemporary British left has been so uncomfortable about talking about these large-scale cases of child sexual exploitation which more often than not, the perpetrators generally tend to be of South Asian Muslim origin and the victims tend to be underage girls from white working class communities is because that kind of interaction fundamentally undermines their white privilege narratives. That's precisely why they feel very uncomfortable in terms of talking about it. Also, with Labour, I think it's very interesting. So if you take, for example, the Labour Party manifesto for the last general election, 
it made countless references to far-right extremism, which is a problem in the UK. But the prevailing threat is Islamist-inspired extremism, but that wasn't mentioned once in the manifesto. So I do wonder, because the reality of the matter is the Labour Party does command high levels of support within British Muslim communities. It's almost a bigotry of low expectations. They feel that if they talk robustly on these matters, if they really call out these issues, if they and also if the Labour leadership really should be criticising a number of Labour councils in those post-industrial areas. Because the reality of the matter is, I do think that a number of local councillors, they knew what was going on on their doorstep, but because they were more vote-seeking, as opposed to representing all the various sections of the electorate, you know, that sort of criticism from the leadership hasn't really been there at all. And the councillors have let themselves down. I think the police forces in those areas, we've had police officers say, you know, we were looking to protect race relations. This is why we didn't uh, approach this issue robustly. And ultimately, I just for whether it's, you know, local councils, national politicians, police forces, they're ultimately there to prioritise community safety and national security. They're not there to protect multicultural ideology. And I think it's just one of those issues where you see that fundamental disconnect now between the Labour Party in particular and its traditional white working class voters. I think that the perception that the party has really been reluctant to discuss these issues it definitely feeds into that deeper disconnect. Ella? Part of the prejudices among certain sections of the far right, or, you know, like Tommy Robinson supporters who are racially prejudiced and think that every Pakistani man in the country is predilected towards abusing children or young girls is born out of a kind of conspiratorial way of thinking. It's a completely ignorant viewpoint. It's not right. But one thing that really helps feed that kind of viewpoint is a sense that the authorities, the government, the police are keeping things from you, are covering up stuff and are not revealing the truth. And of course, in this case, they were covering up stuff and they are still unwilling to let all of the truth be shown the light of day. And so that's what feeds prejudice. It doesn't just fall down from the sky. Part of the problem is if you want to face those ignorant people and perhaps get them to think differently. You're going to have to talk about this with warts and all. I mean, it's an incredibly upsetting case. And the more that it's shrouded in mystery, the more that problems like this, the genuine tensions that are there in those areas among those communities are going to fester. So if we want to fight both the prejudices of far-right groups who are racist and stop young women from being abused in the future, more mystery and more people feeling tight-lipped is not going to help that. You have to let things be out in the open and discussed. Ella makes a fantastic point. So as I was saying, when you talk about the national politicians being reluctant to talk about these issues, local councils and police forces, almost as if they're almost cooperating in terms of trying to keep all of this under wraps, it allows for that fostering of that anti-system sentiment within those areas, which is why if this report was not released for public consumption, it would have only intensified that sort of anti-authority, anti-system sentiment, which is why I'm glad that the report will be released for public consumption. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show.
The Crown Prosecution Service has revealed that every single person who has been convicted under the Coronavirus Act was wrongfully charged. The police have been given extraordinary powers to enforce the lockdown restrictions, yet they still seem to keep going beyond those powers. Police have even issued fines to children, even though the law does not allow them to give fixed penalty notices to children. Tom, you've written about this this week. Do you want to explain a bit about what's gone wrong with the corona coppers? Well, what's gone wrong is that they seem to never have actually understood the laws that it was that they were supposed to be enforcing. As you say, all of the cases which have been prosecuted under the Coronavirus Act, all of them have been quashed. Um, There's also going to be a review of 12 people who were charged under the kind of separate regulations that were brought into police, the lockdown, restricting movement, etc. And the cases are just remarkable. You know, the very first conviction, actually, under the Coronavirus Act was quashed days later because it turned out Mm. that the woman in question who was found kind of loitering at a train station had not actually broken that particular law. There's also been a confusion on the part of the police between the Coronavirus Act and the regulations. And there was a fascinating case of one 18-year-old, this guy called Lewis Brown. He was uh, wrongfully convicted under the Coronavirus Act. Um, He was arrested in Oxford. He was trying to take money to his vulnerable mother. So he's wrongfully convicted under that bit. He was also wrongfully convicted under the wrong bit of it because it was the bit that only applied to Wales. And this is one of the kind of most (laughs) remarkable things about all of this is that it seems that the police just genuinely didn't seem to bother to work out what the content of the laws that they were supposed to be enforcing were. And time and time again, as all of these cases have been raised, Big Brother Watcher in particular have done a very good job about um, putting the police's feet to the fire on this. The response has always been, you know, it's new, we're getting used to it. But I don't think that just stacks up, you know, given the amount of cases that have been put forward, the amount of cases we've seen pile up over this amount of weeks. And it just feels like the kind of glee on the part of the police, because they had not only these new powers, but this kind of moral authority you know they were there to stop the virus and to save lives it's led them to make some truly worrying decisions and i think what we have to reckon with is not only that police incompetence which has been very serious and there's been some very ugly cases of it as well that we should get into but also the remarkable naivety of a lot of people who were agitating for this police state and are now kind of turning around surprised as to what that has actually meant in practice I remember quite early on in the lockdown when um, Owen Jones called for a police state and literally used the words, I'm glad to be living under a Tory police state. And then was suddenly surprised that, you know, ethnic minorities were being disproportionately targeted by the police, you know, as if the police were somehow on this one occasion going to behave differently from normal, that because of the virus, it was all going to be all right. And the police would just behave in a completely above board moral way in a way that they never have done before, you know, in our history. Um, Ella? Yeah, I think that's what's rankled me most is that the police have miraculously done what they have been desperately trying to do, you know, for decades now, which is give themselves a makeover as your friendly neighborhood copper, who's just here to stop you from dying from this deadly virus. And of course that's not what the police are. And without sounding like a kind of ridiculous anarchist that goes around shouting a cab, (laughs) I mean, the police are the authoritative representatives of the state. They're not there to help you, though they might occasionally give you directions, they're there to enforce the law. And the problem is there are so many situations now where the police are getting involved in people's daily lives, where there is no law being broken and no question of a law being broken. I mean, there was a startling example that just made me so angry this week when the buses and trains started reopening and going back up to running at 70% of their timetables. And there was this kind of, at the beginning of this week, there was a bit of a panic about, especially in London, people cramming themselves onto crowded 
tubes. And loads of the papers ran with the story that said that, you know, the police were going to be there to help with crowd control. Mm. And buried in one article, there was a quote from a police spokesperson who said, yes, well, of course, it is not illegal to board a crowded train. However, and so then you just think, well, what? Then why are the police getting involved in stopping people from boarding a crowded train if it is not a police matter? And it's those really small things, as Tom writes in his article this week, that ends up with this situation in which the police are, without question, handed the power and the ability to intervene into our private lives in ways that are going to be really difficult to row back on. I mean, you can understand in the current situation we're in with the lockdown, with the pandemic, with all the fear that there are certain things that the police might do that they might not normally do and they might be a bit heavy handed. But it's this idea that they can sort of just stop you in the street and ask where you're going, that they can be nosy essentially. Police love asking for information. They always want information on you. The idea that you now have to give it to them because it's all just, as you say, Fraser, in this kind of moral crusade against a deadly virus is frankly bullshit. I'm really worried about this new fake nicey-nice version of the police being the one that stays because actually underneath it, they are still coppers who are not acting in our best interest, but trying to be heavy handed. And I think we should, without sort of, again, sounding like a mad anarchist, start resisting these things because a policeman should only be involved in your life if you're breaking the law or under arrest. Otherwise, you should tell them to sling their hook. Tom? Well, I think one thing that's worth kind of bearing in mind here is that, you know, we've all been kind of um, transfixed by some of the more ridiculous examples that we've heard so far. You know, a policeman in Cambridgeshire apparently patrolling a supermarket and remarking on how empty the non-essential item aisles were, you know, and, (laughs) you know, policemen stipulating certain products you are allowed to buy. You know, the policewoman who showed up on someone's front lawn and said that they weren't allowed to hang out in their own front garden. You know, all of this is kind of vaguely ridiculous, Mm. but there have been some very serious cases as well. You know, Greater Manchester Police last month were forced to apologise because there was footage of a police officer threatening to pepper spray a bloke who was going and running errands for his vulnerable mother. When someone else tries to intervene, when a woman starts shouting at him for manhandling this guy, he says, you'll be next. You know, really, really nasty stuff. We saw a lot of people being roughed up at that protest um, in Hyde Park at the weekend. Mm. Now, those are outlier cases. I'm even willing to concede that even all the other cases that we've heard are not necessarily going to be representative of how police have been acting across the country. It seems to differ a lot, you know, in between different areas. But at the same time, this is the problem, is that when you hand the police and the state in general more of these powers you are putting it into the hands of people who in many cases it turns out are bumbling idiots as well as sometimes being shall we say slightly too quick to violence and that's a really really bad problem i think the problem particularly with the coronavirus situation or any public health situation is on top of that you've handed them all of this moral authority you know they're they're not just mm. enforcing the law as they normally would they're saving lives in a way that they otherwise might not think and the way in which you see in so many of these kind of little videos that, that have come out the police kind of barking at people you're killing people i think you get a little bit of an insight into how much that has that has kind of inflamed this problem and led them to really overstep the mark in a way that's been pretty alarming I think also one of the clear kind of precedents for this in terms of the police no longer actually dealing with crime would be in terms of the hate crime debate. So we know for a fact that the police up and down the country are recording and investigating non-crime hate incidents. And so I, th- I think, you know, something like that has clearly prepared them for a world in which <laughs> actually what is criminal and not is is no longer their concern. So clearly you get a case where 
the police will say, I think it was Dorset police, mm. who actually ignored the letter of the law because they didn't feel that it was in the spirit of what they wanted to achieve. But I think, you know, when you when you start blurring the lines between crime and non-crime, guidance and law, then there's obviously a recipe for those things to be confused and for disaster to happen effectively. You do have to think about the fact that the police are now basically swanning around patrolling parks looking for people to tick off. Mm. It's not so long ago that they were suggesting that they didn't have enough resources to properly investigate quite serious crimes. So perhaps at the end of all of this, whether it be them spending their time patrolling people on social media or going around telling us off in our front gardens, Mm. I think the role of the police and what they are and are not allowed to get involved in needs to be far more tightly defined. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.